3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations true owners, caretakers and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders past and present of the Kulin Nation. We recognise their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. You're listening to Thursday Breakfast on 855 AM, 3CR. Good morning, Carly. Morning, Scheherazade. Morning, listeners. Yes, it is the 13th of August, 2020. Oh, my goodness. Um, <laughs> we are at the uh, end of the year. Uh, my mind is still in March this year. Um, and I do find that sometimes every now and then I'm writing 2019 still on the letters at work. So, great. Um, <laughs> how are you going, Scheherazade? Oh, look, yeah, I don't know, like just a lot of time in my room. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, but we've got some um, exciting long talks on our show today. Um, yeah. So, yeah, after after the news by Kate Kelly, what, what do we have? So first up, we're going to hear um, Priya speaking with Liam Kane and Shan Winsgrip. Um, and they're speaking about campaigns against wage theft at Australian universities. Liam is a PhD candidate in history at UNSW and an active National Tertiary Education Union member. Shan is a PhD student and tutor in history at the University of Melbourne, as well as a member of the NTEU Casuals Network and Branch Committee. And then you have a great interview as well, Shahrazad. Yeah, yeah. So it's about this uh, anthology coming up. So the submissions are open um, and it's called Unlimited Futures, Black and Black Futuristic Vision um, or Visions. So, um, yeah, and it's uh, aimed for young adults. It's co-curated with Jed Press and edited by Rafif Ismail and Ellen Van Nierven. Um, and it's a chance for First Nation writers and Afro-Black writers um, and also Afro-Indigenous writers, so we're talking Tuareg, uh, Amazigh and Copt um, in North Africa, uh, to share their stories about visionaries past, present and possible futures. So Helen Rafif joined us to talk about it and how it was born. And that's our show. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> no, but I am excited to be hearing two long-form interviews. I know it's not something that we usually do on Thursday morning breakfast, but um, I think it's nice to indulge in long interviews sometimes. Yeah, um, and it's something a bit uh, different from the sort of, uh, what do you call it, uh, constantly updating the sort of live coronavirus blog or whatever the hell. Um, so it's nice to have something that's um, creative and imag- imaginary as well. Yeah. yeah. Or to think about those futures. That's a bit different from the present, obviously. Yeah, trying to break down the present, but, yeah, imagine new futures. Mm. Yeah, very important to think of a time um, forward and <laughs> in the future past coronavirus. Um, but yeah, now to the news with Kate Kelly. 
Good morning, I'm Kate Kelly and here are the top stories on 3CR this Thursday. A Centrelink office in Abbotsford, which was threatened with closure at the start of the coronavirus pandemic, has been spared for another six months. In May, residents were given just two days' notice of the planned closure of the Abbotsford office, with the nearest welfare centre six kilometres away in South Melbourne. Community outrage forced a lease extension of three months in May, and that was extended by another six months on Monday, according to building landlord Salter Properties. In a statement, Service Australia General Manager Hank Jongen said with no comment would be made until negotiations finished. The local community will be kept informed of any service changes, he said. Greens leader Adam Bant and Federal MP for Melbourne said Government Services Minister Stuart Robert had seemingly done nothing to progress long-term options. And federal agencies are investigating the slaughter of Australian cattle in, Indone- in, an, in the Indonesian province of Akek after distressing new video footage emerged. Animals Australia on Friday made a, made a complaint to the Department of Agriculture about the alleged breaches at two facilities, which the activist group said involved practices first exposed in 2011. The footage was gathered in late July and early August. The Australian Livestock Exchange Exporters Council is investigating what happened. The council's chief executive, Mark Harvey Sutton, said the killings were distressing, unacceptable and inappropriate. Harvey Sutton said the offending facilities could be removed from supply chain if breaches were identified. The federal government recently decided against appealing a federal court ruling that a six-month ban on live cattle exports in 2011 was invalid. And Victorian police have arrested and charged a young woman in Melbourne who was captured on video allegedly being choked and pinned to the ground by a police officer. So in in video footage posted initially on social media, the woman, who was subsequently found to have had an exemption for wearing a face mask, can be heard shouting, he's choking me, as she was arrested on Wellington Street in Collingwood on Monday evening. Over the course of roughly five minutes, the officer can be seen holding the woman around the neck, sweeping her to the ground and kneeling on her back during the arrest. An onlooker in one video told police, You are choking her. She's got an excuse for not wearing a mask. She went to the doctor yesterday. On Tuesday, Victoria Police said the St Kilda woman was stopped because patrolling officers saw her without a face covering. In a statement, police said the woman did not state that she had an exemption at the time of the arrest and refused to provide identification. The the arrest has been referred to an internal police review body, the Professional Standards Command. And that's it for Thursday's headlines. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio 855 AM on digital and online. 3CR Radical Radio. G'day, you mob. Kutcher Edwards here. I just want to send out a message to you all. To stop the spread of COVID-19, also known as the coronavirus, it is advised that you keep 1.5 metres away from each other. Follow rules on social gatherings. Wash your hands when appropriate and stay home if you're feeling sick or unwell. But most of all, keep strong, stay safe. And of course, keep listening to 3CR Community Radio to keep connected to the community. We'll get through this 
and hope to see you real soon. Bye. You're listening to 3CR 855 AM, Thursday morning breakfast. It's time to head into a song, and this one is Rider in the Rain 2020 by Moju, Trials and Birds. This road's called progress Ooh. It runs from oblivion to nowhere Six lanes forever Ooh. You just face ahead and stare Across bridges of illusion Through them tunnels of despair No time to wait, it's far too late Fear's already there It's already there, uh, yeah, I'm really aware I can hear the pain howling in the wind It's blowing against the monuments That they bomb you with to come around, they be trying to eat ya, soul I mean they eat ya, riding with a load of gun, no care for the people, execute the healers, persecuting fear us, nothing left to save, man, and all they do is steer us, down a dark and lonely path, hidden graves and lonely hearts, curtains on a broken path, hoping it'll open up, just in case you ain't no, swerving in my lane, on the freeway of darkness, trying to find my way, This road's called progress
And just then we heard Rider in the Rain 2020 by Moju, Trials and Birds. Hi, we're the Marindas and you're listening to 3CR Community Radio 855 AM. You're listening to Thursday Breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. We now go to a conversation with Liam Kane and Shan Winscript about campaigns against wage theft at Australian universities. Liam Kane is a PhD candidate in history at the University of New South Wales and an active NTEU member. Shan is a PhD student and tutor in history at the University of Melbourne. She's also a member of the NTEU Casuals Network and Branch Committee. Hey, Liam and Shan. It's really great to have you both joining me on the show. So could we start off with you introducing yourselves in a little more detail, perhaps Shan and then Liam? Sure. Um, hi. Thank you um, for, for having us today. Um, I, I, I would just like to begin by acknowledging that I'm speaking to um, the audience here um, originally that belongs to the um, Wurundjeri Unborn Peoples of the Kulin Nations. Um, yes, yeah, Priya said, I am from uh, Melbourne University um, History. Uh, in particular, I'm, I'm finishing my thesis in um, modern Chinese history, looking specifically at people's diaries. Um, I'm also um, uh, an NTU uh, member and branch committee representative. Um, have been um, involved um, in the past uh, two to three years in union activism. Um, here, yeah, that's about me. Hi, um, uh, my name is Liam Kane. I'm, so I'm doing my PhD here at uh, UNSW. Oh, and I should also say that I'm talking to you from Gadigal land um, in Sydney. So I'm actually on UNSW campus now. I have permission to be on campus. Um, uh, so I'm doing my PhD in military history. I'm actually finishing my final revisions now. Um, I've been teaching at UNSW for about three and a half years. Um, and during that period, I've gained a lot of experience um, uh, of uh, teaching in higher education and, and uh, in its both positive and negative, negative aspects. I've been a member of the NTU for a while now, but m- more active in the past year or so. Um, and I'm also an active member of UNSW's Casuals Network. Awesome. Well, yeah, I really appreciate all the advocacy work that both of you um, have been doing, and that's what we'll be talking about today. Um, So I guess to get a bit of the lay of the land, for people that aren't familiar with it, could you explain what wage theft entails in the context of casual academic teaching positions? Um, So, you know, as I'm talking to you now, um, I'm talking mostly off my own um, personal experience um, and kind of informal conversations with others. So I'm talking to you in an informal capacity, but my opinion um, about this is that universities tend to, uh, well, essentially run on on overwork, um, and ca- uh, people who are casually employed at universities um, in both teaching and non-teaching capacities are uh, almost always work, as far, from from my experience, over over what they're. Um, budgeted for in their, in their contracts. Um, it's widespread. It happens in many forms. Um, it, it could be the case um, that work is mischaracterized. Um, so a tutorial could be relabeled a practice session or something like that. Um, or I guess more often in my experience, it's that the, the work, the, the amount of time budgeted for each ta- task in the contract um, is, is nowhere near sufficient to cover the time that you're actually doing. Um, a big one there is marking. Um, marking is often uh, only paid something like 
uh, well, um, a certain amount of time per student. It always tends to go longer than that, so therefore your wages are being stolen. Um, most, well, lots of people aren't paid for um, uh, administrative work, so it's talking to students um, and lecture attendance and things like that. But I should say that the conditions vary widely as well. So um, it's uh, it can be a little bit hard to speak about it in general terms. And also, of course, just quickly, casual tutoring and casual coordination also differs in terms of uh, wage theft. So coordination um, is obviously more involved than, than um, being a tutor. It's, it's more administrative work. Um, you're writing and delivering lectures. It's often the case that the lecture, the lecture time you're uh, given, the, time, the amount of time you're paid for to write your lectures in is often um, insufficient. Um, and even worse, uh, it can be the case that um, you start work, course development work before you actually sign your contract. So you're not paid for a lot of that development work. That's quite a common thing as well. Um, but Sean um, obviously has lots of experience and knowledge in this area as well and probably could add in some detail there. Yeah, thanks, Liam. Just in terms of the details, um, for example, one tutorial here at Melbourne University um, is two hours of preparation and one hour of um, uh, class delivery. That's nowhere near enough um, in terms of the actual hours that goes into preparing for a tutorial, especially for new tutors. They need, you know, at least five. Um, some of them, some of them need more hours to do the readings and to, you know, to sort of digest the content and devise questions um, on top of delivering the class and answering students' emails, uh, which can come at, at any time um, in the week and throughout the semester. Um, so that's one example. And the uh, other example was that, um, as Liam said, marking is a big um, thing here because a lot, of, a lot of tutors actually rely on the money they receive from marking to, to survive the semester. Um, for marking, we are paid um, basically a, a fixed uh, rate for um, marking 4,000 words per hour per student across the semester. It doesn't matter how many um, essays there are, how many you know, segments of the si uh, assignment there are, we are paid this sort of you know, uh, uh, fixed rate, which is um, very, I mean, we've, we've done the data collection and on average, uh, I think people are underpaid, um, uh, you know, they, they, should, they should really be paid double at least for, for marking. Um, and then there are, you know, other things, for example, um, meeting with your subject coordinator. Uh, usually that, that occurs once every week, at least, and people not paid for that. Uh, meeting with students. I know one tutor who I shared um, an office with at, at one point. Um, she had to meet, um, you know, 20 students a week after the marking was released just simply because students had, you know, a lot of questions and that was not paid at all. So she lost a whole week to to um, answering students' questions without um, any pay. Thank you so much for explaining um, what the issues are that you that you face during casual tutoring and especially casual marking and the differences with casual coordination, because I think this is something that is not super well understood for people that are outside of the sector. And I just wanted to clarify as well that that 4,000 words per hour, that does vary across universities. Is that correct? That That's the University of Melbourne's rate, but, but it does vary across different institutions. 
Um, yeah, so at, at UNSW, the, the amount of time you're given to mark will greatly vary across um, different um, schools and faculties and centres. Um, but in the Faculty of Social Sciences, um, there's a sort of blanket rule um, that you get 45 minutes per student per term. Um, and that will be uh, the amount of time you get rega really regardless of what what types of assessments are there and how many. Yeah, 45 minutes is ridiculous, especially when you're thinking of a, you know, of, of a discipline like history where there's a lot of large essay based tasks, I'm, I'm imagining. Um, so just to pivot a little bit to get an idea of the scale, how long has this issue been going on um, and who's really been raising the alarm about it? So, um, it, it is really widespread and it's decades in the making, um, Freya. So, you know, I started teaching in 2015, so that's like five, more than five years ago, and the problems were prominent at the time. So you can imagine how long this has been, um, uh, you know, even, even before that. I've known tutor, tutors who um, com have complained about this issue that goes, really goes back to, um, you know, a decade ago when they were tutoring at Melbourne University. Uh, back then, uh, marking was not paid at all. Marking was um, part of your tutorial rates. So um, I can only speak from my experience, I guess. So uh, with, since 2015, since I started teaching, uh, casuals have been complaining about this issue um, to their, you know, to our bosses, and then later to the union. And uh, in 2018 at Melbourne University, a small group of casuals formed the NTU uh, Casuals Network, and that's really where when we started to gain traction um, on, on this particular uh, issue of wage theft. Uh, we talked to uh, tutors, our colleagues, our um, peers, our, our you know supervisors, and then we found out that actually no one was paid the correct rate for for marking. So we started campaigning um, uh, since since then in the past you know in the past two to three years. Um, and really at our uh, university, within our branch of the NTU, it is the, ca the rank and file casual um, NTU members who, who have been sort of, you know, leading the way in, in a sense. We've been, you know, working or even pushing um, for something to happen within and without the union. So, yeah. Yeah, thanks for that. And um, so now we've got a bit of an idea of how it's been going at Melbourne. Um, Liam, could you tell us a bit about how it's been going at UNSW? Yeah, I mean, um, I agree with Shan in the sense that um, I think the, the, the wage theft phenomena in, in um, higher education and, of course, elsewhere um, has been uh, going for a long time. I mean, I talked to some people who work at um, UNSW but other universities in Sydney um, some people have actually left academia and um, are doing other things now, and um, they they said that when they were you know a decade ago when they were teaching in, in higher education that they experienced similar things. Um, as far as who is who is complaining about it um, or, bring, or or sounding the alarm, um, it's of course the precariously employed people themselves complaining to um, their, their their immediate superiors in the university. That's usually a course coordinator or school managers. Um, and then complaining to the uh, the NTEU as well. Um, but 
I actually think that, and I don't know for sure, but I think the UNSW Wave campaign was inspired by the work um, at Melbourne Uni. Um, so in 2019, around the middle of the year, the um, UNSW and TEU branch surveyed casuals um, and uh, gathered quite a lot of um, data uh, and identified a range of um, issues relating to underpayments um, at various different parts of the university. Um, and I guess I can elaborate on um, uh, the story here so far shortly. If you tuned in partway through, you're listening to Thursday Breakfast and you're on 3CR 855 AM. That's the first part of a conversation with Liam Kane and Sean Winscript about campaigns against wage theft at Australian universities. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio, Melbourne's Voice of Dissent. 3CR Community Radio, 855 on the AM dial, streaming live at 3cr.org.au or on 3CR Digital in Melbourne. We now go to part two of our interview with Liam Kane and Sean Winscript about campaigns against wage theft at Australian universities, the impacts on casual academics, and how this intersects with graduate students' lives at the university. Thank you for giving us the sort of general landscape about what's been going on. So um, as people, uh, as listeners might have seen, uh, the University of Melbourne had some recent victories around that um, around that campaign. So um, maybe, Sean, if you could speak to some of those victories and then, Liam, if you want to riff off of that to talk about um, where the campaign at UNSW is at now. Yeah, um, thanks, Priya. So, yeah, the Melbourne University, um, basically, the, uh, we forced the university to acknowledge that they have been conducting, uh, you know, uh, wage theft um, for the past years, and, and um, they now started to repay us the money that they owned us. Um, for example, recently um, in my faculty, Faculty of the Arts, um, they've been... Um, uh, initiating, they initiated this uh, or, um, audit process where they want they um, invite people, tutors, past tutors, to submit um, claims for um, back pay. So, uh, I, for myself, I calculated the the, the money that they owed me. It's over eleven thousand dollars. That's a lot of money, and we do we have tutors who are claiming. Uh, much more than that. Uh, that shows you the extensive, you know, the, ex- the extent to which um, the wage theft um, uh, issue has has been going on, and how much they they are affecting people. Um, so we, but you know, I should emphasize that our victory um, was premised upon struggle. I suppose um, we really fought hard for for this one. Um, as I said, since 2018, since we formed our NTU Casuals Staffs Network. We've been virtually meeting once every two weeks, sometimes you know, sometimes weekly to to to, to um, organize our work workplace. Um, we and we really organized around around the principle that that the issues were all connected. We're talking about a university ecosystem that's neoliberalized. We're talking about the lack of public funding here. We're talking about the casualized work, work, workplace. So we really organize around the idea that staff's working conditions are students' learning conditions. And in this process, we mobilized, you know, hundreds of casuals at Melbourne Uni, including postgrads and undergrad students as well. 
and um, permanent staff members. So we really campaigned, to, campaigned together, collecting data, as Liam said, and collecting you know all sorts of evidence. Uh, we petitioned, um, we you know rallied loudly, and we occupied our dean's office at one point. So um, I, I guess you know that, that that was the process, and and eventually we we won. And now um, in the in last week since the ABC's exposure of our, um, our wage debt campaign, I know that Fair, the Fair Works um, now intervened. They're um, investigating in University of Melbourne. So hopefully this is the start of something, you know, much larger in terms of um, ending casualization and, and university exploitation. Yeah, absolutely huge. And uh, can't thank you guys enough for the work that you've done. It's allowed me to put in a claim for the almost four grand worth that I'm owed. Um, but, yeah, Liam, where's the, where's the struggle up to at UNSW? Um, well, yes, uh, thank, thanks, uh, a big thanks to the, the um, people at the uh, University of Melbourne who have kind of um, paved the way um, with this kind of uh, campaign, um, and we're certainly inspired by it. So, um, yeah, I can give you my sense. Like, I'm not representing the, um, UNSW, the NTU uh, in any official capacity, and I, um, I, can, I can really only give you my perception of the wage theft campaign from my vantage point, which is as someone who's also committed, uh, committed, submitted a claim for um, underpayment for a, a number of courses, um, and I have been involved since the beginning. Um, so after our, uh, after the, re- the review of um, well, sorry, the gathering of data in 2019, the u- union called a meeting with the uh, casual members to, to decide what we wanted to do, um, whether we wanted to push claims or not. Um, it was agreed that we would uh, push push our claims. So the uh, union met with UNSW management in, um, in February of 2020, so this year, um, and sought that UNSW conduct a, uh, an audit of particular schools and faculties um, uh, in early March. Um, and the, uh, the management has done an audit, um, and it's been it's, it's generating um, kind of mixed um, evidence. You know, at one point they, they hadn't found anything, and then they actually did find some stuff, which they've been... Um, which, which they have now been kind of uh, looking into more closely, and they've formed a, a special kind of group within the university to do that, as, uh, as my understanding. Um, but on uh, the 1st of June in, uh, this year, uh, management advised um, that they had uh, commenced uh, looking through um, a review of casual payment in um, in the School of Business and, and through other faculties, but they're starting with business. Um, and then management also advised that they had um, informed the uh, Fair Work Obedensman um, that there was a review being done at, at UNSW. Um, and the at, at that point, they, they, the UNSW also released through one of its news distribution things that they had found um, uh, problems with payment, as they called it, or, or something like that, in the uh, School of um, Business. Um, so, you know, as, as we, not as we speak literally, but, you know, as we speak, um, NTU representatives are, you know, meeting with management monthly to be to be briefed on the um, progress of this review. Um, so the university is currently reviewing payments into the School of Economics, Accounting, 
banking and finance, as well as the Faculty of Arts and Social Sciences, engineering um, will be next to follow, and then um, other faculties as well. Um, so the, within this pr process, the, the, our, our branch here is going to review, uh, well, you know, continue pushing any, any evidence of, of underpayments. Um, so it's still very much under, um, you know, in, in, in process. Um, I, I can't sort of say uh, at all how, how much um, uh, how much money is going to be uh, well, is, is potentially owed to people. Um, although I suspect it's a lot, uh, given uh, my own experience and my conversations with others, and um, uh, the kind of if we take the University of Melbourne as a um, uh, any kind of indication of of scale. Um, I really hope that um, the, the UNSW campaign um, has a, um, a, a similarly strong sort of um, message um, to the one that Melbourne Uni has had in the sense that it inspires other um, casuals to kind of step forward and start pushing for these wage theft campaigns and, yeah. Yeah, um, absolutely. And, you know, sending all my solidarity to the UNSW campaign, I really hope that this progresses in your favor and that everybody's paid the wages that they're owed and that this leads to putting in place structures that make sure that people aren't underpaid in the first place. Um, so just before we wrap up, um, Sean and I have spoken previously um, about the impact that this has on graduate researchers in particular and the graduate researcher demographic, um, graduate student demographic as being a key part of people that are affected by wage theft issues at universities because we make up a lot of the teaching stuff. So did you want to talk a little bit about uh, issues that impact graduate students and how this wage theft concern relates to that as well? Yeah, thanks, Priya. Um, yeah, as you said, a lot of um, casual tutors are PhD students um, completing degree just like us, and they really rely on, uh, rely on sessional teaching as a source of income because no one can survive on, on you know, the stipends that, the, um, that we receive. I mean, I, for one, I don't have a scholarship. So I really just, you know, uh, the, the teaching is my sole, sole um, source of income. Um, the impacts of um, wage theft on students, um, I would say it's wide ranging, but I would just say that um, marking underpayment, for example, or casualization in, in general, if you like, um, really affects postgraduate post students and their research and their life. Um, I, 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 at various points, call this a precarity trap because, you know, to, in my experience, I have to teach because I really need the money and then I find myself teaching more and more classes because I've been getting, you know, underpaid um, uh, every time I teach. And then... I, you know, so, so the more, the more I work, the more precarious and, and sort of, you know, dehumanized I feel. So eventually this has led to, to, um, reduced time for my own research and really this has led to delayed completion. Um, but I, I also want to, wanted to emphasize that, you know, this is not inevitable. Um, we know this is not inevitable. Universities, um, you know, can support us. Uh, better by simply putting people before profit, right? But, but that, that's not how they operate um, fundamentally. So, for example, we we are six months into the COVID nineteen pandemic. A lot of postgrads, 
me included, have suffered sustained disrupt disruptions to our research and our lives. Um, as, as a result, in I think in May, 644 students and staff at Melbourne University signed an open letter, basically calling on our um, university senior leaders to provide adequate support for us, including six months universal extensions to our candidatures and our stipends. You know, library is closed, our office is closed. There's no way for us to access research material. So we have to, we need extension. I mean, not all of us, but some of, um, most people do. But University of Melbourne has completely ignored our concern uh, and our letter. Uh, this is because they are prioritizing budgetary restraint over our livelihoods and our well-being. Um, so it's this sort of, you know, profit before people operating principle that we need to attack, we need to fight against. And it's the same principle that's been, you know, underpinning the um, the wage set um, issue in the past decade. And it's the same kind of um, uh, principle that's um, underpinning the, um, the the way they treat postgrads. And it, it is the same principle that's underpinning their uh, proposed job cuts um, that's been rolling out right now. Yeah, absolutely. And I really appreciate you linking all of those concerns together. Um, Liam, is there anything you wanted to add to that? Um, well, only just to kind of maybe just uh, talk a bit about this, this idea of the, the precarity trap. It's a great word for, I think, um, the, the, the structural conditions that have a bearing on a, on a precariously employed person at a university, but I guess particularly people that want to pursue a career in, in academia. Um, you know, during the PhD candidature, uh, yet you work, you, you tutor because you need the money, um, you also want the experience, right? And also you want to, uh, teaching's a really enjoyable thing. Lots of us um, uh, feel really passionately about education. Um, by the same token, um, during that period, while you're doing a PhD, you're on a, you, you're on, you, it's very unlikely you'll be even on a fixed-term contract. And when you finish your PhD, um, I remember when I first started my PhD, it was like, well, you know, plan to be um, precariously employed for two years. And now, and then towards the end of my PhD, it was like plan to be precariously employed for about three or four or five years. Um, and now, of course, the situation is completely um, uh, disrupted and, 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 and even more uncertain as a result of COVID. Um, so, yeah, I, I really can see this um, these conditions that start in, in your PhD candidature laying the ground for, for being trapped in a... Um, in a, in a, in a very precarious position in universities. Um, and the effect of that on, on graduate research is, uh, well, you take what, what you can get when it's available. So there's, the, that opens the risk of you over, um, overburdening yourself with work and that, that affecting your, um, your research and, and maybe ultimately your, your submission. In addition to that, um, I guess on a more personal level, uh, you can't plan. I mean, you can't plan really during your PhD. You can plan to be doing your PhD and be at one university, but beyond that, um, you can't really plan your life if you don't have it, have those that kind of security that comes with being properly employed. Um, and that's not that's obviously something that not only people in higher education face, but it's that's but it's people who are employed insecurely across um, across the board. It 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 does it does a lot of Harm in, um, in in blocking people's ability to, to plan their lives. Yeah, definitely. It's it's really scary seeing people 
weighing up whether or not they see a future for themselves in the sector with the way that this is all going um, under COVID-19, but just with COVID-19 exacerbating all these pre-existing issues that you that you've both touched on. Um, so, yeah, thank you so much, both of you, for for joining me today. Um, just before we finish up, is there uh, is there anywhere that people can continue to follow what's happening with the UNSW campaign, what's happening with the Unimel campaign, and maybe um, any other networks or accounts, things that you wanted to promote? Uh, oh, sorry, Sean, you want to go? Oh, no, no, I was just going to say, um, we we have our, um, we, we basically, our, our social media presence is great. We formed the, you know, we've got our uh, Melbourne University Casuals Network, um, group. I think that one is closed anyway, but we've got an open page that's called Melbourne University Casuals. Um, people can follow us there. And we've also got uh, on the national level, we have the, um, casualized, unemployed and precarious workers. Is it <laughs> casualized? I can't remember the it's, full it's, name. The uh, yeah, it's casualized, unemployed and precarious university workers. Um, but we pronounce it Kapow. Um, and that's um, that's where that's that's our Twitter account. Incredible. Um, yeah, we've got um, thousand over a thousand followers there, so people can can follow us um, there, please. Yeah, sweet. Um, cool. And I, Liam, was there a UNSW Casuals page that you yeah. wanted to, to promote? Um, so there's a there's a UNSW Casuals Network website um, that you can look at for some uh, statements put out by the network and other resources. Um, that are available. Uh, you can find the UNSW Casuals Network on, uh, on, on Twitter and Facebook as well. Um, and, uh, and yeah, and keep an eye out for Kapow's Twitter as well, which is it's usually fun. Yeah, sweet. Well, I will put all of those links in the show notes as well, and hopefully any casual academics that have worked at either of uh, the University of Melbourne or UNSW or who've been inspired by this at other institutions are keeping an ear out and keeping an eye on your pages. So, yeah, thank you both so much for joining me. Thanks so much, Priya, for having us. Yeah, thank you very much. You're listening to 3CR 855 AM on digital and on the internet, www.3cr.org.au. Fitzroy Legal Service has launched a free information and advice phone service for people who have been stopped, questioned, fined or charged for breaching the new COVID-19 restrictions. Have you been fined or charged under the new laws? or stopped and questioned by police for being outside. Call 0434 136 501. Weekdays between 9am and 5pm. That's 0434 136 501. Or head to fitzroy-legal.org.au for more information. You can also report incidents at covidpolicing.org.au. Fitzroy Legal Service is a 3CR supporter. So, here you are, too foreign for home, too foreign for here, never enough for both. Ijuoma Umebinyo, Diaspora Blues. What makes you smile and adds a spring to your step? 
What does it mean to belong? And how do we build a home away from home? Diaspora Blues is a show that contemplates what is and what could be. Join Busto and Bigwa every Monday at 2.30 on 3CR Community Radio. Produced by Yan. You're listening to Thursday Breakfast on 3CR, 855 AM. So, Unlimited Futures, Speculative Visionary, Black and Black Fiction, is the title of an upcoming anthology for young adults, co-curated with Jed Press and edited by Rafif Ismail and Ellen Van Nierven. The project is a chance for First Nations writers and Afro-Black writers to share their stories about visionaries' past, present and possible futures. And submissions are now open. So joining us today is Rafif and Hela from Jed Press. Welcome. Thank you for having us. So firstly, uh, could you just please introduce yourself and the work you do? And obviously you can introduce Jed Press within that. Absolutely. So I think I'll go first. Um, hi, I'm Rafif Ismail. I'm an emerging multilingual writer based in Buru, Western Australia, Colonial Learners Perth. Um, and I work mainly in different forms of storytelling, trying to adapt oral storytelling traditions to screen, to stage, to page, basically. Um, and I'm currently fortunate enough to be the um, managing director, co- managing co-director of Jet Press, um, which is a brilliant anthology, a brilliant online literary journal um, that publishes First Nations and pop works across Australia. Hello. Yeah, so I am Rafif's counterpart at Jet Press. So um, where Rafif is the managing director, I am the editorial director. Um, I'm not really sure what to say about my work at this point. Mainly, um, I had been working in publishing for some time and at the moment, most of my work um, that still is in publishing um, centres around creating space for um, marginalised voices, I guess, uh, if we want to be very vague about it. <laughs> um, but, yeah, mainly providing a platform for black and other people of colour to be able to publish their work um, and be paid while doing it, because um, God knows this industry has a very toxic habit of not paying anyone for anything. Um, <clears throat> and outside of that, I, yeah, I have my day job as a comms worker for a student advocacy organisation called FIGSRC. And yeah, I don't know what else I'm doing at the moment. We're all just living under COVID and trying to get through one day at a time, right? So yeah, who knows? Thanks. And also relegating um, voices of colour to the margins of publishing as well. Like, I'm just thinking, sorry, I'm just thinking of news media and how... um, voices of colour are just always like opinion pieces and they have to like it's usually writing about voices of colour rather than writing about something more broad anyway sorry no no absolutely (laughs) it's that narrative of trauma or tragedy and that you're only allowed to tell one form of story that's actually why I got into into creative writing so I come from a theatre background and um the reason I got into creative writing is because I just saw this dearth of Australian pop writers who are able to write anything outside of that memoir sort of guideline that we have. Um, and I am a huge fan of science and speculative fiction. Um, that's genuinely how I learned English. It's reading comic books, listening to science fiction on the radio, because I am that old. 
um, that I used to listen to radio dramas um, back in the day. Um, and um, yeah, the fact that there was no like Afro black science fiction space um, was like heartbreaking for me as a young person. And as a young person um, arriving in Australia as a refugee, um, I came here speaking a different language and I was very quickly asked to not speak that language in order to learn English. And for um, like the subsequent years until I got to university, I did not read a single work by a person of color in English because it wasn't offered in any curriculum. And now we have this incredible monumental change with authors like Maxine Beniba Clark and Alice Pong and Christos Tolkos and Melissa Lukashenko and Ellen Van Neven and Alexis Wright and Tony Birch were all on curriculums. And isn't that just so amazing? Like, that's definitely something that didn't exist like 10 years ago. Um, and I guess that's where Jed Press came in. Um, Hella, it's Hella's baby. Hella brought it. Hella funded it. Um, Hella started it. Um, and like grew this really wonderful community and this really fabulous literary journal. Um, because there was no space for emerging writers from, I guess, the margins to come to center stage, we were only invited in certain situations and for very, very specific things. Um, and there is that sort of like, you know, element of like voyeurism to it. Like they want our stories, but they don't want our stories. Um, and they, I mean, white people, I'm saying that like unrepentantly by they, I mean white supremacy, um, and anyone who enables it. And so Jet Press kind of exists to counteract that. It exists to upskill, support, and explore all the different stories. We're here for emerging writers. We are here for established writers if they want to join us. Um, and we're here for like their entire career, not just their career at Jed. We want them to see us as like a great and accessible starting point and then go on to take over this super white literary scene. Like that's basically Jed's mission and vision. Um, and beyond that, though, it's it's not even so much that there wasn't space for marginalized voices, but as Rafiq said, um, the limited space that is available for quote unquote marginalized voices. Um, again, like as Rafiq said, a lot of the time it was. Uh, I don't know what the word is exactly, but yeah, so basically, you know, if we've got trauma porn to offer, great, they'll take it. If we want to talk, when they need an Asian person to talk about something specifically Asian, like, oh, there's a racist incident that happened to an Asian student, so let's get an Asian to write about that. Um, and that's and that's when they actually bother to, to do that. Most of the time, um, yeah, you've got white people doing that instead. Um because why give an opportunity away? Um, but even when, even when you're, you've, you know, you've offered up your trauma story to a publication, you're lucky if they pay you for it. If you're doing an internship, you're lucky if they pay you for it. If you have a paid job, you're lucky if you're making enough money to survive. Like, and so Jed was something I came up with as a kind of a stopgap measure, a band-aid measure. Like Jed was somebody, oh, David, um, 
David Riding from the City of Literature once asked me years ago, what success for Jed looks like in the long term? And I'm like, in the long term, Jed's success means Jed doesn't need to exist anymore. Ideally, in five years, I would love to be able to shut Jed down because, like, there's just so much space for everyone and everyone is getting paid just equitably and all of that. Um, hasn't happened yet, but remaining optimistic. And, well, I guess that kind of leads into uh, this project. So can you tell us a little bit about Unlimited Futures and how it was born? Can I go first on this one? Because, yeah, I just I just want to say something. Um, I actually don't have very much to do with this project. Um, uh, I mean, I am involved insofar as Jed is involved um, because Jed is co-curating this with Fremantle Press. But um, this project started because Rafif approached me years ago with this brilliant idea for a speculative fiction anthology. And I was super into it and I was like, this sounds great. Let's do this. And from there, for the last, what's it been, two years, Rafif has, oh my God, Rafif has pushed for this. This entire thing has been Rafif's baby, if you will. Um, Rafif has, yeah, got it, got it, got it up and running, created this from scratch. So like contacted writers, contacted editors, contacted publishers, pushed for grants, pushed for like, so yeah, two years of Rafif's really, really hard work, um, of which I did very little. And I really want to be clear about this. I have done very little for this project. It is all Rafif. Um, so yeah, now we have, now we have unlimited futures. Rafif, tell us about it. Um, first of all, I really want to accept all of that, but because I'm a Leo, but also <laughs> I want to say that this projects like this aren't an individual thing. They're a community sort of collaboration. So um, I might have done the grant applications, the contacting publishers and things, but it wouldn't exist without the support of a respected literary journal like Jet Press um, lending us their name, like, and then without Fremantle Press taking a chance on this sort of project. Now, Unlimited Futures is a speculative black and black visionary fiction anthology. And by black and black, I mean First Nations and black diaspora. Um, and it's it was born out of the need to see, I guess, like work that like black work that envisions the future, honors the past and on the, and responds to the present. Because when we don't see ourselves in the past, present and future, we're being erased from history, which is what is usually done in Western media. So this, this anthology is going to be a combination of both emerging and established writers like writers at every stage of their career. So folks who've written, this is their very first story, and folks who have very, very high and respected profiles. And I think that's actually the best thing about it. It's going to be that mix of voices because we're going to see perspectives that we haven't seen in the Australian literary landscape before. And I don't think I'm being arrogant when I say it's going to create a huge shift when it opens these pathways um, for these new and emerging voices and when it creates this space where we can imagine radical and just futures. We're living in a world, on a, we're, we're settled on a continent 
that is going to be facing like the brunt of a climate catastrophe. We're living in a world on the edge of environmental collapse. Um, we've seen what the effects of imperialism, white supremacy, and hypercapitalism have done to humanity. Now it's time to go back to our roots and to look at what used to work and what's still working. I think sometimes when when disasters like these strike, it's always like, I'm sorry, I'm going to tell this as a story because that's the way I know how to tell things. But um, in Sudan, when when a disaster strikes, usually people find elders who have lived through something similar and get their like knowledge on how to survive it. We, the community said this anthology is asking to contribute and this anthology is aimed for. Our communities that have long storytelling traditions with an anthology that's being created on a continent where the world's oldest storytelling cultures exist. There is so much knowledge that is still there, that is still needed, that is visionary, that is speculative because it's speculative in the way in that it goes against white supremacy, um, like imperialist white supremacy. And that knowledge is what we need now. That's the knowledge we need to move forward, to imagine a better world so that we can create that better and more just world. Um, so I say that this anthology is not just on its own an anthology. It's a project. It's a community. We're growing something. We're growing a movement. We're not just creating a book. Um, and we're so very lucky that we have the incredible award-winning um, poet, writer, editor, and educator, Ellen Van Neven, um, as co-editor of this anthology. Their perspective and their voice is so incredible and has just brought, like, a dimension that, um, like, is, that just has given such depth to this project. Um, and, of course, the work of Fremantle Press and Jet Press in letting us have the creative freedom to curate this anthology, to edit this anthology, for it to be a truly own voices anthology, created by own voices, edited by own voices, and co-published with an own voices work. That is incredible and monumental, and I hope that that sets a precedent in the Australian literary landscape for how successful partnerships between institutional organisations and own voices institutions can come together in a holistic and sustainable way that empowers both organisations rather than takes away from one or the other. And one that's not too paternalistic as well. Absolutely. <laughs> um, I guess that's a thing, hey? <laughs> Absolutely. Um, yeah, I, I, I kind of, you touched a lot of, um, on this in your answer. Uh, I was going to ask, like, the next question was, like, sort of focused around like talking about bringing these voices together and when I, what I mean by that is like bringing uh, different Afro-Jasper voices with First Nation voices and um, honouring the sort of long history of these 
voices together because this is there is a history of African and First Nation voices coming together, you know, and talk about sorry, pointing to the sort of colonial architectures that oppress us and the and uh dis- dispossess us and our lands and our stories now and in the past, but also honouring the sort of resistance of the past and the now. Oh my god, such a long winded question to think of different futures, right? And you kind of all sort of said that in your answer. But is there anything more that you wanted to talk about within that realm? Um yeah, for sure. So of course there's that very long history of how this continent and the African continent have sort of been entangled, um, especially as a result of like Western imperialism. Um, I mean, we've seen in, this was actually touched upon in Maxine Beniva Clark, Ahmed Yusuf and Madan Smidan, um, amazing anthology growing up African in Australia, where, um, they, like, they did touch on the links between, um, like so-called Australia and Africa and how there were Afro-black people on the first fleet. So that's sort of settler, like, there are people who are indigenous to their own homelands who became settlers here. And that has continued for the whole history of this continent. And we can't really shy away from that reality. We have to confront it head, head first. We also have to recognize how, um, like, the policies that were implemented here against First Nations people were then used in African nations to create apartheid states. And then, and that we, then we have to look at the resistance movements, the First Nations and Black resistance movements across the world that have worked in conjunction with each other, um, and that have always been complementary for global Black liberation. Um, and I guess I really, want this anthology to honor all of that um like that's my vision for it is to reflect the visionary pasts the hopeful futures and the invisible ties of the global black diaspora um and like this so-called australia so that's what this anthology will be um it's going to be a page in an ongoing story for global black liberation and global black storytelling because there have there have been stories that have come before and there will absolutely be radical and incredible stories that will come after um but yeah we're really pleased to have this page hello did you want to add anything um I don't know. I don't know if I have anything to add that Ray hasn't already pretty ex- expertly covered. Um, just that I'm, yeah, similarly excited for the potential, um, for the potential ways that this book can change the landscape, um, the literary landscape, I suppose. Um, also, I'm just like excited to read it. Like we were discussing, um, I think before this official phone call that we have some, we cannot divulge any names, but we do have some honest to God, real exciting people who agreed to be part of, um, this anthology and some just amazing submissions. Like I'm not, I'm uh, every now and then I go in and 
make a look at them. I'm not actually part of the selection process or any part of the editorial process because, as I said, this is entirely uh, given that I am not a black person, um, for starters. Um, but this is entirely Rafif and Ellen's purview. But I have had a sneak peek, and can I just say I've never been more excited to read a book in my life because it's honestly going to be good. Honestly, even if I wasn't a part of this peripherally, even if I wasn't like this isn't a project we've been working on for some years, this is going to be a really good book. This is going to be a book that you're going to want to read. Like even if you're not interested, even if you even if you're like, well, what is a diaspora? Well, what is Indigenous Australia? You're going to want to read it because it's going to be a good one. You know, so I'm like just super excited and like, yeah, like, you know, we've got some big names and whatever, but like we've also got just some like amazing new talent emerging. And I part of like what really excites me about the potential for this book is, yeah, finding finding new writers, finding writers we have never heard of or finding first time writers who have submitted to this and just being blown away by the like quality and the just you know, excellence of these submissions. So, dang, am I, yeah, I'm just really excited about this. Um, and I think it has a great, like, yeah, like, as with many similar anthologies coming out, like, I think every brick we add to this, oh, brick was a terrible anthology, but, you know, every every little bit that we add, every drop we make in this ocean, like, will will create more space and will make this a better industry going forward. Like, every tiny thing we do, not that this is a tiny thing, this is a big thing, um, but every little thing we do is going to have such positive ripple effects into the future, and I am so excited about that. Like, I wouldn't work this hard and do the things I do if the end goal wasn't to create a future that I want to live in because, like, my God, I don't, I don't like the way this country's going. I don't like the way the world is going. And every little thing we can do to just make the future one that we all want to live in, one that we feel safe and respected and valued. Yeah. So I think this book will go a long way towards that, and I am just over the moon about it. So now we're going to leave that discussion and go to a few community announcements, and we'll be back with the second half of the talk afterwards. So now we'll go back to our discussion on Unlimited Futures, Speculative, Visionary, Black and Black Fiction, which is the title of an upcoming anthology. We're joined by Hela Ibrahim and Rafis Ismail. We left off the previous discussion talking about the limited space for black writers and the enjoyment or the excitement about having an anthology imagining new possibilities and the future. Also, I'm just really excited that it's like fiction and I'm really excited that it's like futuristic and um because I'm so tired of talking about oppression and reading the oppression. Like we know we we know this. We know we we know this. Like let's think about like also on top of that, alongside that, let's also think about the future which talks about like reality anyway right or dissects that um i guess like we were speaking yeah. a little bit before oh did you want to add to that sorry yeah look i just wanted to add it's it's funny you say that um because god knows i'm fucking sick of talking about race and all of that but i'm also excited that it's fiction i years ago i interviewed um grace lucas pennington uh who's the editor at um, black and right in brisbane um and we were talking about that and we we're talking about fiction specifically, fiction's ability to change narratives and to change social structures because 
yeah, there is something to be said for going into a bookstore and picking up a, you know, academic book or a, um, a nonfiction book that's very didactic and very like racist, like racism is bad and here's the history of racism and all of that. But realistically for like, you know, if you're, it's about accessibility sometimes even, but like not being slapped in the face with messaging goes a long way sometimes, which isn't to devalue the work of academics or nonfiction um, in also uh, really helping dismantle and develop our thoughts and develop our theories about how we move through the world. But fiction has such an important role to play a lot of the time because people don't want to be, you know, hit in a, you know, told to sit down and be like, listen, listen, white person here is all the ways you've impressed us or whatever. Like sometimes a less didactic approach is just really needed, I guess. And it's always still centered around whiteness, right? Explaining to whites that like, oh, there's a thing called a race and oppression and they're structures that like kill, that kill, right? And like, yeah, I'm just thinking, just as you were saying that, like I've never really read much fiction because like also the fiction that's available, that was available when I was like looking at books in bookstores, um, was mostly like white fiction, right? In this country. Um, and so that sort of just let me into this non-fiction world because that's where like a lot of writers that, you know, whatever were writing in. Um, yeah. You're looking so, for experiences that, yeah, you're looking for experiences that resonate with you, right? So, I mean, don't get me wrong, like, I was a huge reader, um, as a child, way more than I am now, but like, there's a, you can read books like The Sweet Valley High, um, and, you know, they're still, they're still fits with reading or whatever, but this is not my life. This is not my experience. Like, I'm reading all of these young adult fictions as a young, uh, young adult fiction books as a young adult and being like, yeah, that's like cool, but hugely unrealistic because the protagonist in the book is like, I don't know, I can't even think of any examples right now. But just oh, just, I just think of one. Sorry. Okay. Just yeah. um, allowed to do sleepovers. Oh that's my god. Thing. Yeah. Exactly. That's exactly that's exactly the kind of stuff I mean. Where it's like, I don't know if people realize this, but like. And I, I won't speak for all ethnic parents, but good God, my mother not once, not once in my entire life let me do a sleepover ever. Like I didn't even go to school camps. Like I didn't even go to school camps because my mother's like, you know, oh, wild dingoes and rapists. Like, no, no, you're staying at home. I'm like, that's the ethnic experience. And I'm like, wait, how many young adult fiction I was reading? And it's, it's like fun to read, but it's not at all relatable. So of course you turn away. Like, it's like... Sorry, I was going to be like, where is that story of your parents driving at 2 a.m. to pick you up from a friend's house because you're not allowed to stay overnight? Mm-hmm. Like, That's driving a- across a city. I had a sundown curfew. Everybody's talking about, like, the curfew in Melbourne at the moment, and I'm like, look, I'm not happy with it. Like, I feel like everything, like, you know, God knows there's, like, a horrible grey weighted blanket over the city right now, but... Let's be honest, it's not like I didn't have this growing up, you know. Exactly. Other people have pointed out things like, um, lol, curfew, there's no tanks on the street. What are you worried about? Like, back back home in my country, there are tanks on the street. And I'm like, I don't have that experience, but I do have the experience of my mother calling me the minute the sun goes down, being like, where the bloody hell are you? Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, where's, where's that? Where's that? <laughs> I, I just, I had this specific phrase in my mind in Arabic. It's just like, yeah, but the shawara, it went. Exactly. Like, literally, the moment, like, 
the sun goes down. Um, you are straight trash if you are not home. <laughs> like, what are you doing? Where are you? And my parents were like, chill. Like, huh? they're the cool auntie and uncle um, oh. in the community. <laughs> like, and yet still, yep. All of that, and that's absolutely not shown in young adult works. And we're gonna, with this anthology, it's gonna be a work of fiction that actually decenters whiteness. Yeah. Is not like yes, white audiences are gonna enjoy it, but my vision for it, it's gonna be black kids, pop kids are gonna pick it up, and gonna be like, oh hey, I resonate with this. I see myself in this. And this is why we chose visionary fiction. Because visionary fiction, um, like Walida Imashira says, encompasses science fiction, fantasy, horror, magical realism, alternative timelines, and more. It's like fantastical literature that helps us to understand the existing power dynamics and helps us imagine paths to creating more just futures. Um, so that's like from... Um, and an, an interview that she said um, where she explained how she coined that term. And actually one of my templates for this anthology is one of her works, which is Octavius Brute, Science Fiction Stories for Social Justice Movements, which is like an incredible, incredible anthology that came out of the U.S. And the U.S. is, of course, like leaps and bounds ahead of us with like First Nations anthologies and like Afro-Black anthologies and black and pop anthologies of like speculative and science fiction. Like they are decades ahead of us, but that's fine because we're catching up and like no offense with Australian work has always been better. So <laughs> not to get nationalistic um, because God's no, um, but yeah, no, like we have some incredible talent and we don't want anything to be a barrier to this anthology. So language, um, like publication history, accessible, all of that is not a barrier. If folks want to submit in another language or they want to submit um, like via like an audio submission, we're accepting those. Like because we recognize the importance of oral storytelling and the traditions of that. And like I've said hundreds of times, I am more than happy to be on the phone with someone for 10 hours helping them craft their story than I am to reject the story outright and have someone not submit because they're worried that it doesn't meet like Western publication industries standards. Um, because when we say that this anthology is for emerging and established writers, I just want to clarify that emerging writers doesn't mean super young writers. It can mean writers from all stages of lives. And our elders have such incredible and important stories to tell. And we absolutely do not want to exclude them from like from this experience. So we're here to hold and open that space for them as well, should they want it. Um, and like, I think I could speak for like the JET team and the Free Press team when I say that we are trying to make this as accessible and as like as supportive and collaborative as possible a, pro a process, and so we want this to be a good experience. So we're we're here to answer questions and queries. Um, 
You can reach out to us via email, via Twitter, um, the Jet Press Twitter, not our personal Twitters, please, um, because that would be awkward. Um, and you can, and we, we will get back to you. We will answer. Um, if folks have difficulty with submitting things, let us know. We'll try and fix that situation. Like, there are so many barriers for people from quite unquote marginalized backgrounds to access publishing and we want to be like to obliterate as many of those as possible in this anthology and sorry obliterate sounds like a really strong word but that's what it should be like because these barriers should not be an acceptable thing they shouldn't be the norm you know so that's the right word to use i've always said um there's uh, within our communities there's always the struggle between do we infiltrate a system or do we obliterate a system and everyone has their own approach to that my personal approach um so this is you know disclaimer this does not reflect the values of gender <laughs> except of course it kind of does um but from my viewpoint obliterate blow the system up not literally this is not aco do not <laughs> but like literally we destroy the systems destroy the systems we love on we live under not just in publishing everything god knows the healthcare system is like not great god knows the like you know just i can't even begin to list it but like yeah let's let's destroy these systems let's create something new and better um, exactly that's what and they're all intertwined multiple axes of oppression and multiple axes of privilege. That's literally what an intersectional understanding of systems is. And like, this is why, but while we're talking about an anthology, something in publishing, something in literature, we're also talking like something in social justice spaces because it is a form of advocacy and of activism, like, um, so I come from a country that's until recently been under a total dictatorship for the last 30 years. We've had about 10, 20 years of democracy since independence. We, our independence was like 60 years ago. Um, and in that country, the first people that they came for were the storytellers, were the journalists, were the poet, were the, the musicians. Those were the people that were in prison. Those were the people that were executed. Those were the people that were forced to flee, to flee. And that's because there is something so powerful about speaking truth to power, about like exploring, challenging, like the status quo that it can, it can topple governments. It can cause massive and monumental and lasting change and so that's why we see attacks on the media attacks on the publishing sector attacks on literature in australia like when i see all of that i'm like that was my childhood in sudan you know like it does not surprise me because that's what happens when you have conservative borderline fascist governments they want to destroy, um, like, the most accessible way for people to, like, congregate and rebel, which is the arts. The arts have always been integral to revolution, to social change, and to social justice. And I might have digressed 
quite a bit from this anthology. Um, but basically, yeah, no, I'm not digressing because like black activism and black art are so deeply intertwined that they might as well be the same thing. Um, and so that's why when I talk about this project, I talk about it as a movement, not just a book. And that's what we're aiming for. That's what we're hoping for. Um, and yes, like Hella mentioned, this does not, you know, reflect the views of dead press, blah, 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 blah. Um, but it absolutely does. Um, because we're here for abolition and justice, um, not for the status quo. Yeah, and um, and also just just thinking and just coming off, like you know, as you were um, speaking, I was speaking, I was thinking about like, oh, um, also a way to like get us to be good uh, pawns or good whatever, um, uh, good and useful bodies for the state, um, you know, is by erasing those stories, you know, mm-hmm. um, and uh, and how that is across multiple forms of, like, power, you know. Um, mm-hmm. I was thinking about, like, oh, like, um, like, we're, like, for example, in my family we're really upset because um, my great uncle is the last person who lived in the Sahara and he was the one who had all the stories and now he's um, quite uh ill um or his brain has changed because of uh dementia um and that means that now we've lost all those stories because they were oral stories and they were supposed to be hidden they're supposed to be like they're not worthy of um being told right and it was only our generation so our cousin like me and my cousins that were like oh we should start writing down these stories so that they're not forgotten or lost and so that we can know exactly who we are as well because that from that is strength and from that is like power because these stories are not from um one that's talking about oppression or one that's talking about um uh you know a success success story in the western world or these sort of things um yeah so i think yeah, I just wanted to add that. <laughs> um, um, and uh, I guess, like, I was going to ask a few questions around publishing industry, um, but um, was there anything else that you wanted to add? You kind of beautifully encapsulated um, all those in in what you were saying. Was there anything else you wanted to add before? Um, yeah? I just no, I was going to make a joke about the publishing industry needing to <laughs> be burned alive. Um, <laughs> I'm a little bitter these days. <laughs> bitter? Um, I think it's, no, no, it, it's a valid reaction. Um, I think rage is absolutely a valid reaction to oppression. But Shahrazad, I actually really wanted to, like, say I emphasize with that so much. Um, because, like, it's the same for me with our, in my family, our elders are getting older. And there's no way to record those old stories. And that means that that's stolen history. That's history that's going to be lost. And so I really, really, like, emphasize with what you're going through. And it's an absolute tragedy. And we need to, like, create a space in a world where that doesn't happen. Because these stories are not shameful. They shouldn't be hidden. They they should be celebrated 
and retold and like centralized because that's an important part of our histories which is basically an important part of ourselves stories make us who we are and when that part of us is lost then that's literally a part of ourselves that's lost so yeah thank you for sharing that and yeah and it becomes and it's such an integral part of understanding who we are today like in terms of our elder stories and and so on like I understand I've said this before but I I understand myself as an Egyptian um through stories my mother tells me right so you know providing cultural context in it because like I've I was not raised in Egypt. I've spent a collective of maybe two and a half months there out of the 31 years almost that I've been alive. And so having available, like having my mother um, kind of tell me folk tales or talk to me about Egypt or whatever is how I form a cultural connection. And in fact, I started, um, the Jed, uh, Jed Press has a section called Stories We Grew Up With that I started specifically for that reason, because my mother would tell me all these like folk tales that I remember loving as a child and just, um, you know, not would, but like what happens when my mother dies? Like my nephews, to, you know, her grandchildren, will they hear those stories? And so I've actually started a couple of the stories that um, my mother told me I've published onto Jed in the stories we grew up with. And I have the re- I have my mother's voice recorded, like um, as in I recorded her telling me these stories because I've translated it. Um, like I've translated what she's told me and I've put it up in English, but as I've made a note on the stories, like uh, some of the nuance gets lost in translation. Some of the very uniquely Egyptian things gets lost in translation. And so I also have an audio recording of my mother narrating those stories to me in Egyptian. So I have something that I can pass along to, you know, if I have kids or to my sister's kids or so on and so forth, because I do believe they're important, especially when we're so far away from home or far, far away from our connection. And that's, and that's me, like, and not to, not to overstep, but I think about it in context of um, Aboriginal people who sometimes didn't have the choice to have a parent pass things down, um, who were literally stolen, whose stories were literally stolen, whose cultures were literally stolen. So what happens there? And I think um, two things that are really important about this project is that, one, it's a continuation of, of storytelling traditions, and it's a way to fight to keep those alive and to give something to future generations that they can have and hold so they don't lose their connection and to emphasize a point Ray made earlier that's also one of the reasons um part of the submissions for this anthology where um really want to make a point that you can submit in your original language we have translators ready to to translate in yeah like we have enough connections that whatever language you send us a submission in if you record yourself speaking in your language, we will find somebody who speaks the language, who can translate it, who can work with you on that story because because it's so important and because it's so important to keep our language and our traditions alive. Um, and so submissions are open. So how can people find out more? I know you talked about this before, but like <laughs> just to <laughs> uh, close off the... <laughs> Um, so submissions are open until August 31st. They close at 12 p.m., 12 a.m. Western Australian Standard Time. So Eastern States folks, you have like an extra like two hours. So send things through. Um, and you can find out more at Fremantle Press and at Jet Press, where the submission portals 
our where there are links to, to submission portals. And if you have any questions or concerns or thoughts, send them to us at Fremantle Press or at Jeff Press. And we are so looking forward to reading what you or listening to what you come up with. Matthews and Hella, thank you so much for joining us today. No, thank you. <laughs> thank you so much for having us chat us out. That was Hella Ibrahim and Arafif Ismail from Jed Press, and they were talking about Unlimited Futures, Speculative Visionary, Black and Black Fiction, which is the title of an upcoming anthology. You're listening to Thursday Breakfast on 3CR, 855am. And that's all we have time for, listeners. Thank you so much for listening to 3CR Thursday Morning Breakfast. Um, so first up, you heard an interview um, that Priya had with Liam Kane and Shan Winscrip. Um, they were speaking about campaigns against wage theft at Australian universities. And then we heard a fantastic interview, um, Shahrazad. Oh, yeah, with uh, uh, Rafif, uh, Ismail and Hela Ibrahim joined us to talk about Unlimited Futures, a uh, new anthology coming out on, based on black experience, both here and um, Afro-Diaspora. So tune back in next week and now stay locked in for Lost in Science. 3CR Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop. Melbourne's radical independent bookseller and venue, for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. Or check them out at nibs.org.au to find more information about upcoming discussions and events.